Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, UK radio presenter Christian O'Connell on how life at number one didn't make him truly happy and led to him embracing a drastic change. David Brennan on continuing the work and legacy of Vicky Phelan and Christine Clinton on the inaugural Children's Mental Health Summit. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a good one this week. Got to get away for a few days with my family, which was so nice. We opted for a city break and booked things that we knew the kids would love. There was an adventure park in there, a theme park. But really this time, we relished in the thoughts that they're that little bit older and that they'd be up for walking around a city. And we could feel like we were all there to enjoy the experience rather than just be fighting fires as parents of small children. So... A full break was needed and received and very gratefully so. And work-wise, after all the spring cleaning that I'd been doing, much as slowing down to speed up was needed, and instead of running from one thing to the next, I wanted to have a more strategic plan to my choices. This week, I'm going to start looking at implementing some action plans, things I really want to do and making them happen. Because I suppose if you use the analogy of a garden, once you weed everything away, you're going to want to sow a few seeds, aren't you, and make it pretty. You're not going to want to just look out at flat muck, are you? Maybe you are. And I'm excited to say that one of those plans is that I'm bringing the Go With Your Gut event to Cork. So if you're around on June 22nd, it's a Thursday evening, and want to hear about the importance of your microbiome and gut health for your mood, energy levels and immunity, I'll be joined by pharmacist Una O'Hagan. There'll be a cookery demonstration with Lily Higgins looking at food that nourishes the gut. And because I always place such an emphasis on a really full rounded view of our health and it's not just about what you eat and it's not about knowing the science, but it's also about stress management and relaxation and movement. We'll have a yoga and relaxation class with Fiona Lockran. Tickets are only €25, Euro, available on Eventbrite now. So just search for Go With Your Gut on Eventbrite and hope to see you in Cork on June 22nd. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Christine Clinton is founder of the Christine Clinton Cancer Care and Christine Clinton Wellness for Life. She created an international award-winning three-day cancer care certification programme for spas and schools. She chairs the Wellness for Children initiative through the Global Wellness Institute and is behind the inaugural Children's Mental Health Summit. She joins me on the line now. Christine, you're very welcome. Good morning and thank you for having me. Christine, it's fair to say, based on that introduction, um, you're a bit of a do if you see something that speaks to you, you make it happen. Well, I'd like to think so, yes. Uh, my work in cancer care is really what led me to want to work in children's care, understanding that at least half of all cancers and major diseases that plague us today from diabetes and obesity and heart disease are preventable to a great extent. And so that's really what motivated me to want to do something in children's health. And, of course, the more you delve into children's health, the more you realize the mental aspects are really not addressed enough. And certainly post-pandemic, we were seeing a lot of challenges in school and at home, parents really struggling to know what to do with their little ones. And I mean three and four and five-year-olds were having difficulty sleeping, just the very basics, even eating on a regular basis, and certainly social and emotional development was really impacted by lockdown and not the children not seeing other children and children not seeing other faces and not being able to recognize expressions has really led to some challenges in mental health. And so it just seemed to me that we needed 
to do something about that. And I'm very fortunate to have and my niece who, who started Junior Genius in Baldonnell is a wonderful school. It's the first school in Ireland that has an actual wellness program, a curriculum dedicated to wellness for children. And uh, there's 400 children there. And so we decided we should start there where we had access to the children and parents that were on board with the concept of introducing um, real everyday solutions to some of the, the problems, as I said, just eating and sleeping and connecting and yeah, and I, I'm really glad that there is somebody talking about this because I've said it a few times here on the show. I, I sort of feel like, understandably, we want to forget the pandemic and, and move on. But there are certain gaping holes that it left that we need to, to look at and, and see if there's any ways that we can fill them. And, and you're right. I, I remember even in my own children's school, my daughter in particular, her teacher said, that that age group particularly suffered because they went from sort of the junior infants, we call it here, the very young um, part of school, straight into third class. And a lot more was expected of them without those necessary steps in the middle. And it's just a small example of what happened to all kinds of kids through their teens, through any area of development, that there was a, a sort of a missing two-year part of the jigsaw. Absolutely. And, and you know, now we actually have studies. There was a study out of Harvard. There's a study from Canada and from the UK that shows children's brains literally changed during that time. Um, in younger babies, we saw, again, an inability to recognize uh, expressions and faces, which, of course, will affect their social and emotional skills. But even their gross and fine motor skills, the ability to just roll a ball backwards and forwards, uh, to pick up small items, to be able to, you know, pick up a spoon. They're small things, but they matter for how their cognition develops for the rest of their life. So the formative years, as we know, is gaining more and more uh, interest because we know that what we do actually in the formative years affects our life for the rest of our whole lives. Children learn more in the first three years of life than they'll ever learn again. And if we don't make those neural connections in that time frame, we generally have a deficit moving forward. And that's not really being addressed. And unfortunately, again, I know the system is overloaded and I know that, you know, there are agencies doing the very best they can. But we know that there is definitely a lack of some basic services for for our children and our families, because in a lot of cases, the parents want to do something, but they just don't know what to do. And the point of this gathering of, of having this first Children's Mental Health Summit is that it really is an opportunity to collaborate, to listen to parents to talk to them about what we know. I mean, our keynote speakers are phenomenal. I'm sure you know, uh, you know, the well-respected and loved Dr. Mary O'Kane, who's going to speak about building resilient children. And I'm really honored to have a friend, dear friend, Dr. Sergio Pecorelli from Italy, who has a Lifetime Achievement Award in Women's Health and many other things. But he's going to come and speak to us about the first 1,000 days of life and the importance of taking care of children, not just during pregnancy, uh, for the moms to take care of the, their, pregnant, uh, their pregnancy, but also then, as I said, the first two years of life thereafter and how that really forms their, the whole wellness of the child for the duration of their life. So he's got some very interesting uh, data to share with us about what that looks like. And then we want to translate that into the classroom. You know, we, what does it look like when we see some behaviors happening in class? Uh, and how to really help parents to recognize things so that perhaps they seek 
early interventions instead of waiting till the child is maybe seven or eight and displaying, you know, behaviors that would be considered disruptive in class. How about we look at what these challenges might be much earlier than that and talk about um, early interventions and teaching the children simple skills of communication through play and through language and, uh, you know, demonstrated plays that we have at the school where we're really looking forward to people seeing this program we put together, Education from the Heart. We've got um, Minister O'Gorman to come in to uh, also speak to us there. Uh, but he's had toured the school previously last November and talked about it being a model school for really how children should be. There's a lot of outdoor play um, and a lot of social interaction. And again, a lot of very simple techniques in how to get children to engage. Yeah. And I think that's so important because it's really empowering with knowledge and awareness is, is what you're saying, because I can even feel it as a parent myself, this feeling of, of, of panic or, or judgment and, and not from you, Christine, but sort of from the, the collective. Did you do enough when you were pregnant? Did you do enough for the first 1000 days? What if you didn't, you know, and, and, and it's not about that. It's not about judgment or, or finger pointing. It's about awareness and, and education and ways that we can assist our children. Exactly. I mean, uh, so my firstborn son has, has learning differences and, and I was here in the U.S pretty much on my own without support of family. I mean, I have a, a very good husband, but he traveled a lot for work and just trying to navigate my way through that, you know, and understanding what our children need. And again, looking to see, could I have done something differently? Is this hereditary? Is this, was this, you know, sometimes we just want answers, but more importantly, we want solutions. And that's really what we wanted this to be. We wanted to, to really have, you know, simple takeaways that anybody who attends the conference or the summit will walk away with real tangible, uh, you know, solutions to some of the challenges that they have, actionable solutions that we can apply immediately. Um, you know, just tips and tricks for parents to know there are some simple ways to get a child to do something that you know is in their best interest. But again, with the, the, particularly the younger children who, who didn't have the benefit of social interactions or cuddles with their grandparents or seeing other children their own age, they don't really know how to behave in so social circumstances. So we just want really this to be about um, finding some answers to some of the problems that parents are facing. Uh, and we really want to be a part of the solution. So this Children's Mental Health Summit, who is it for? Who should buy tickets, do you think? I think anybody who is a child or is a, care or who is a, a caregiver, parents, uh, teachers, I think even anyone in the medical community, because there are speakers, really are renowned speakers. We also have Connie Morris coming in from the U.S. She's a 20-year veteran of teaching children with autism. Uh, she has a, a yoga program for children, nonverbal children. I mean, there's really quite a lot um, that's there. Donna Volpata has a program, uh, Building Resilient Children. So I think anybody in the, in the uh, area of children's care, mental health, support as the parents, teachers, caregivers and the medical community. And what do you hope will, will happen after this? Well, I hope that it'll really create dialogue, that we can talk about what's missing and the services that parents can receive for their children. I think I'd like to see parents having the tools to recognize when something isn't quite right, but not, you know, this is part of the problem too. Oh, your child's not bad enough to get services or your child has to be this before you get that. 
it's that I really, we really want the parents to feel comfortable in discussing things that they see within their own home and how their children are behaving and, and give them the solutions to support the children so that perhaps they don't, we don't need to burden the HSE or anyone else for services if there are some simple things we can do at home to modify a child's behaviour and to help them to feel supported. Yeah, and we still sort of have that overhang, don't we, of of our generation. I mean, it's getting less and less. The generation before that, children should be seen and not heard. You know, my generation, <laughs> you know, bad behaviour was to be disciplined. This generation is like, let's let's understand and, and, and let's let's talk. But it can be hard. We can still see challenging behaviours as something that needs to be eradicated or, or fixed. And and that's the the dialogue you want to be part of. That's the change you want to bring about. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the things we, we know is that some parents just don't have the skill set because they were never taught that themselves. So, you know, sometimes we're asking parents to do something that they don't have the ability to do. So we really, it's an exchange of knowledge. And as I said, we, we just want to support the parents that we know are struggling because they tell us they are. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it's difficult to say, I can't get my child to eat. What does that look like? Or, you know, some parents don't want to, to talk about that. Or it's difficult to get the child to go to sleep. Uh, bedtime rituals, you know, there just are some simple things. We have um, a wonderful guest speaker coming in, Julia, coming in from uh, the UAE. She's in Dubai and has a, a sleep program for parents that are really struggling getting their little ones to sleep. And she's coming all the way in from Dubai to talk to us about some simple techniques. Julia Mallon, she's been in the industry a long time, but she's a midwife and a nurse, and she's from the UK originally. But, you know, imagine that that's become an entire business and an area of science and research, the ability to go to sleep. We know there's a whole, uh, you know, science now on circadian health and uh, not just the ability to sleep, but how long you sleep for and how that affects your overall health. You know, when we're sleeping, when we're in REM sleep, that's when our DNA repairs itself. So if you're not getting enough sleep, then you're, literally your immune system can't function. So sleep is a critical part of health. And, um, you know, I think it's important that we, we understand the basics. We want our children to be able to eat healthy and unwell. We want our children to be able to sleep. And as a result, the parents will sleep and they'll do better. So, you know, for me, it's the circular wellness economy. If the parents are sleeping better, the children will too and vice versa. And that leads to better health for the whole family. Well, it sounds like an incredible day of learning. The Children's Mental Health and Wellness Summit takes place on the 20th of May from 9.30 to 5pm in Dublin. And you can find out more and get tickets at childrensmentalhealthireland.com. Christine Clinton, thank you so much for coming on. Coming up after the break, David Brennan on continuing the legacy of his lifelong friend, Vicky Phelan. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, my next guest, David Brennan, knew Vicky Phelan from childhood. Forever a fan of hers and a friend, he of course became a supporter when she spoke out against the cervical check scandal, which ultimately she lost her life to last November. David bought the Vicky Phelan portrait by Irish artist Vincent Devine and has travelled up and down the country with it, helping to tell Vicky's story, educate on cervical cancer and raise funds for charity. And David joins me in studio now. David, you're very welcome. Thank you, Claire. And that's how we first met at the portrait. We were at Shine Festival, which is organised by the Shona Project for schoolgirls. Can you 
remember that day and the reaction from some of the girls who were maybe hearing Vicky Phelan's story for the first time. Indeed, yeah, I do, Claire. It uh, probably the most memorable day, honestly. It was fantastic. Two days, actually. Um, we stepped in. I stepped in in, uh, in Vicky's shoes, if you like. Uh, she had been at the Shine Festival prior to that, but couldn't make it uh, uh, last year because of her health. But yeah, the interaction with the with the girls over the, the two days was just, it was amazing. These were girls that didn't necessarily know Vicky because... You know, in 2018, these kids were 10 and 11 years of age. So um, the last thing they'd be looking at is the news. But once, I mean, they experienced Vicky's story contained within the portrait, they were just absolutely blown away. But uh, they will remember it. I mean, they were visually, uh, you could see that they were taken aback by the, the whole story, really, you know. And it's it's connecting people, isn't it, that portrait? And that's what's continuing on the legacy because we both met yeah. the incredible Roisin who yes, had done yeah. her foundation your your project on, yeah. on the cervical it, check scandal. Indeed, it's been one of the, I suppose, the amazing things that has happened. I speak with John Wall about this as well. Vicky is still connecting people to this day. And uh, Roisin uh, Nikaila, who attended Shine Festival in Waterford, I think it was in 2018 or 19. And she had met Vicky uh, later on that evening in the parlour tea rooms, which is exactly the same place that I met Roisin over a year ago. Um, after, uh, let me see, that was International Women's Day last year. So Roisin now comes along to the events as well. Uh, we, we managed to get her into the Shine Festival. So this was her first uh, chance of speaking in front of people and telling her story, uh, how she was inspired by Vicky, but also the amazing work that she did uh, about the HPV vaccine and the survey that she did on Twitter, which the HSE obtained all the data from her to roll out the... Um, uh, the HPV vaccine to boys as well as girls in secondary school. So she was 14 at the time. So this is the point, uh, I suppose, with, with uh, Roisin is that she represents change. Um, and change. We, we can't make change from the top down, we know this, but we can certainly make change from grassroots up. And Roisin is symbolical of, I suppose, the change that is yet to come. Um, she could well be a future leader of the country, but she's inspiring young girls and letting them know that you don't have to be you know, in your 30s, 40s or 50s to make change happen. You can do it now. You yeah, know? yeah. And that's something that Vicky really wanted to yeah. inspire change because she was brave, brave and courageous enough to do it herself. Can we talk a little bit about her in life then? Because I'm also conscious the last time we spoke was over the phone on radio. I was covering here on News Talk on Lunchtime Live when it was announced that yeah. Vicky Phelan had died and you came on, you know, to, to join with the many people in the country who were really feeling it that day. But let's talk about her in life because, as I said in the introduction, you grew up with Vicky. You knew her from childhood. Yeah, I I hung around in Vicky's house uh, at a, since a very young age. So um, I'm, I suppose when, when I tell Vicky's story at the, um, the events that we have around the country, uh, I, I do make reference to some, uh, you know, uh, memorable m- moments that I have of Vicky and uh, she was always very you know a very strong-willed young girl um, everybody will tell you that that knows her very well uh, she was very determined very very smart young kid really really smart and uh, she had a love of languages a love of travelling and she gave time she gave time to everybody like if you needed advice from Vicky whether it be study whether it be girlfriends Vicky was your go-to, you know, she really was like, and she remained that same um, person as well in, you know, that everybody became to love and know around the country because she gave the whole country her time when she didn't have time. And that was something I think that resonates with everybody. 
I mean, she made the decision, um, you know, when the cervical check scandal broke, uh, that she actually said to her solicitor, and he, he, we, we, we talk about this at the events as well, she had said to Keane that if I'm, you know, being asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement, I will not sign it. Keane said, that will never happen. And lo and behold, it did happen. But she made the decision, knowing that she didn't have time, she made the decision not to sign it and go to the High Court and gave the whole country her time that she didn't have to ensure that the women that were involved in cervical uh, screening, in cervical check scandal, that, that they were informed uh, that they, you know, they were one of the 221 plus women as well. So she was this same person as a young child that you all saw uh, in 2018, 1920, you know, that we all saw on, on uh, you know, the, the national air, we heard the national airwaves and saw on TV, like, you know, she was that strong person all the time, you know. Yeah, she had that brilliant way of being strong and forthright, but mm. also warmth and, yeah. and light. And what yeah. was it like to sort of watch your friend go through that? Because it became her motivator and something to live for, but it was also at a time of very ill health, draining her because yeah. there were so many things that she agreed to. I know there was plenty of time she made to spend with her family and, and make memories, but there must have been an, an element of it that was that was that was draining for her. Absolutely. And you look back now and you think like it's like Vicky was an ordinary person and that's what people love about her. But she was extraordinary at the same time. And like I spend a lot of my spare time continuously listening to Vicky's interviews and podcasts and so on. And like that, I, I, I just, I'm aghast sometimes and wondering, how did she get all this time? Like, it's amazing what she did in, in, this, in this very short space of time. Um, well, I wasn't surprised though, and many of Vicky's friends, especially her best friends, they were not surprised that she was doing what she was doing because this is the Vicky that they knew. It's the same woman, that same girl that they knew. Um, but she did. Uh, she was very uh, forthright, but she had very strong principles as well, Vicky did, you know, and... Uh, when, you know, she knew uh, in her heart and soul that if she signed an undisclosed agreement, it would be, you know, for her immoral, you know, that knowing that there was women that needed to be told. Uh, but no, she took the hard road. And uh, additional to that, then she campaigned for, you know, an improvement in, in the healthcare system, an improvement in, in society as well, and, and a change as well in society for everybody to, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, go with your gut instinct was one of her, um, you know, uh, her mantras, if you like, and um, question everything. You know, if you don't feel if you don't feel the answer getting back is right, question it. You know, this was her mantra. Like, but that's what she did. She gave everybody this time to campaign all those messages and uh, you know awareness campaigns as well. You know, and to speak out was tough, but to stay silent was even tougher. Yeah. Tell us about the the portrait then. So yeah, the portrait. Well, we. I before Vicky went to the States, the portrait was unveiled on the Late Late Show by Vicky herself uh, before she went away to get the um, to go on this um, 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 uh, clinical trial after pembrolizumab. So uh, we knew straight away we had to get this. It was um, it was a must do, and but it was going up for auction, so it wasn't guaranteed we could we could buy it really, and and for how much? So we had a limit. I didn't tell Vicky until the morning of the auction, so um, she sent me back this big screaming text. Oh my God, you know, don't uh, don't overdo it, Davy. <laughs> so, <laughs> did you uh, have a limit set oh, for yourself? Yeah, in your yeah, mind? yeah. You know, I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, we blew the limit, but <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we we look at it. Took six minutes. The auction took six minutes. It was online. Uh, some people were on phones, and some people were actually online. 
but it took six minutes in total and uh, the hammer dropped and the, you know it just snowballed in from there but we had spoken about what the portrait could do or what we you know we had envisaged what it could do as a campaign and to continue Vicky's legacy essentially and you know the COVID lockdown scuppered our um, our events happening um, but we did when Vicky returned from the States we had one in, uh, on the January when when she returned in Munkine in her hometown so and yeah ever since then you know We've we've gone around the country. We've been in WIT. We've been on um, on TV with it on various uh, radio shows as well. Uh, we've just finished a, a one down in Tralee three weeks ago, and uh, we're coming to Drogheda next week as well uh, on the twenty sixth. So they're usually a two day event. Uh, we have uh, uh, panelists come along as well. Keen O'Carroll, uh, Lorraine Walsh will be there, and uh, Kiva O'Neill Four from Two Two One Plus as well. And uh, John Wall will also join us too. So John comes to most events as well. And uh, they take about two and a half hours. Everybody hears Vicky's story. So the portrait itself contains Vicky's life story. I tell her story um, right from childhood up to um, the first unveiling of the first panel, we'll say. And we take it from there. There's three panels in total. And the first one is a black horse. The centre panel is Vicky posing. And there's a huge amount of symbolism. And it does take about 45 to 50 minutes just to go through the portrait itself. And Vicky worked on this with the artist Vincent Devine. She did. I mean, it's uh, it's essentially, um, you know, her book Overcoming. Um, it's her book in uh, portrait, really. And um, so she was very much involved. It was a collaborative uh, uh, method in terms of producing this. So, um, you know, Vincent didn't arrive along with a paintbrush down to the beach in Dockmore. He arrived along with a, with a camera and a chair and Vicky sat in the surf. And um, over the course of a few months, she she uh, essentially spilled her life out, and um, they used the book itself um, to do that. And uh, yeah, it, it's amazing what's in it. But moreover, those that haven't met Vicky in person, it is essentially almost it's it's as good as meeting Vicky in person because they are hearing her story uh, from somebody that knows her. Her parents come along to every event as well, so it's. Um, it's quite emotional. Uh, there's a lot of emotions in it. Uh, people feel angry. People feel upset. Um, they're inspired, though. That's the thing. And uh, at the end of it then as well, you know, people demand change. And uh, people will get checked because um, that's the message that Vicky wants is to look after your own health, be empowered to look after your own health as well. So if she is still saving lives. She is still working. Yeah, you know? keeps that fire burning. Absolutely, yeah. How do you feel about the portrait now? Does it bring you joy? Does it bring you sadness? Does it bring you inspiration? All of the above? It does. Um, Claire, this portrait sits on my landing and every event, even talking about the portrait, because I know what's in it, it's very emotional. It, it really is. And at every event, I get emotional. Um, that's the effect of Vicky. That's the power of Vicky feeling, really. Um, and people up and down the country, we're so surprised as well because you go, you almost try and detach uh, a detach a uh, distance away from her from her home uh, and assume that people are let's say not as emotionally connected to Vicky as they you know as you could be but they are you know it's um Vicky held everybody close to her heart and in the portrait that symbolized as well um it symbolized as the shamrock which is sitting on top of her heart in the portrait and there that's the people of Ireland so you know yeah it, it's it's um, 
it is an emotional affair. It's draining on me each time. Uh, we don't have a big team of people. All, all you know, there's me in the background. I have my day job as well. Um, so pulling it all together is, uh, you know, it's a big task. We do depend on um, the colleges, universities, um, cancer research or cancer support centres to, you know, club together uh, committees. And uh, I think everybody puts their shoulder behind the wheel and, and gets them over the line. But they're the most amazing events, honestly. Well, I'm hosting the one on the 26th. I'm really looking forward yeah. to it. Will you remind people where it's on and where they can get tickets? Yeah, so we, we'll be in Drada. We've got a three Facebook, uh, uh, sorry, two Facebook pages. One is Vicky's Tribe. Uh, one is Vicky Feeling Portrait. All the details go up there for all the events. So the 26th uh, will be in Drogheda. Um, the hosting uh, cancer support centre is Gary Kelly Cancer Support Centre. And uh, we'll have music, we'll have panellists and uh, the experience of the Vicky Feeling campaign and portrait tour, which uh, is not to be missed. And on the Saturday, we will have a more informal uh, event then for it's like a walk-in event. So people can come walk in between, I think it's between 11 and 1 o'clock and uh, I will do uh, a portrait talk then at, uh, at that time as well. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a wonderful event, like they all are. Um, so looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me as, as part of it. I'm really honoured and privileged to be helping keep the fire burning. As I say, David Brennan, thank you very, very much for thank coming you, on. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Christian O'Connell had the number one breakfast radio show in the UK when severe panic attacks led him to a complete overhaul of his life, including saying goodbye to the top job and leaving the country. Find out what he learned after the break. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, Christian O'Connell was at the top of his game, number one breakfast show in the UK, beautiful wife and family, house with the gravel driveway and the island, as he writes in his memoir. But something wasn't quite right. He joins me in studio now. Christian, you're very welcome. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, Claire. And it is such an interesting topic to talk about because these are the things we think we need, you know, to be having the top career, everything working out, money in the bank, a nice house. But you have to feel it inside, don't you? And we don't really say that. It's like, don't mess anything up. You've got it all. Say nothing. Yeah, it's like the first part of your life, you know, you're striving. You're trying to make your mark on the world. And a lot of the time you're trying to impress mum and dad and stuff like that. And then what happens is when you get all that stuff, you're like Gollum. You start hanging on to it. You know, you've got the ring and there's something sad about that. There's something desperate and insecure about it. And I think our whole lives were constantly in transitions. That's where the magic and the tough stuff in life are. Well, constantly, I'm in a big transition at the moment. I just turned 50. My eldest daughter, first one left home two months ago. So there's loads going on now. I'm not the same dad anymore. It's like I got sacked three months ago. And even now when I see her, it's like uh, she's changed my terms of employment. I feel I'm more like a consultant dad now. So I'm going through this massive change now being 50, like, well, where am I now? If I'm not that dad, what kind of dad am I? And so, yeah, about eight or nine years ago, everything I thought I wanted in life and that I'd worked really hard for suddenly wasn't bringing me joy and happiness. I was starting to have very bad, you know, I didn't know what they were, but I, I, I learned very soon they were panic attacks. And I guess panic attacks, anxiety... They're very, very common, but no one ever talks about them, especially when, to all intents and purposes, someone who's been on live radio for 25 years and could do stand-up, they don't equate how how could you have anxiety and do some of that with no script five days a week. And it's like, it doesn't really matter. Trouble will find you wherever you are. 
I spent years interviewing so many Hollywood A-listers, and most of them, between you and I, are deeply insecure, unhappy people. That's why most of them bless them are in and out of rehab. You think you're multimillionaires, you're adored by the world, everyone around the world cares about your movies, and, and yet something else is going on inside. So I guess for me, anxiety and panic attacks, it started to threaten everything that I held dear. I wasn't able to do my job for a couple of weeks, and it was terrifying because... You know, that's how I pay for my family. That's my identity as well as sort of the man in the in the family. And so when you get threatened with a loss of identity, that's a real that's a real moment. And it was it was terrifying. I can look back now and realise that actually something had been trying to get my attention for a long time. And maybe someone listening might relate to this, that it sometimes it takes some kind of physical or emotional breakdown to actually make you wake up to something which has been not happy in your life for a while. And so the great thing about it was that it made me go and get help. And that's the best thing I've ever done for myself. It changed me. It changed how I am as a dad. It changed everything. I hated going to get therapy at first. I remember the first session, this poor guy, I said, I shouldn't be here. He goes, oh, why is that? I said, therapy is for screw-ups. I'm not a screw-up. And he just laughed and went, wow. <laughs> okay. And I could see he was like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> He said, well, why are you here, Mr. Non-Scrub? Then why, why have you come to see me? And so over two years, I started to understand a bit more about panic anxiety. And then it, it changed my life. I was able to go back to work. Not just not just go back to work. I was I could wake up a bit. I was in my mid-40s. And I'd realized that actually, I think I'd been trying to numb down this gnawing thing. I wanted more adventure in my life. Everything I thought that I wanted, I got, and it was making my life smaller and more narrower. It was all then just about desperately hanging on, protecting that. And that's not that's not living a life. It's not why I want to show my two daughters. So my wife and I, one night, after a couple of glasses of wine, we were like, so has all the exciting stuff in our life happened now? And now we just, you know, wait for the kids to leave home, and then it's us. We were like, that's not us. We'd always loved travel. We'd always loved Australia. And so we started to talk about possibility of me seeing if I could get a radio job in Australia. And long story short, yeah, I've now been living in Australia for five years. Um, and so when I tell people, eight years ago, though, I almost had to quit doing what I love, which is this. And so when I go, well, now, though, it's a good end of the I am I'm the other side of the world. I chose adventure, and I learned so much from the panic and anxiety and a breakdown, which I can see as a breaking apart. We use breakdown a lot, but it's not what it is. And as you say... In our sort of teens, twenties, we're just going, 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 and then it's, yeah, it's that midpoint, fun. isn't yeah. it, that you suddenly go, "Yeah, okay, time has actually really gone fast. There's only a finite amount of it left. How do I want to spend that time?" And that can be equally scary and mm. empowering at it's the same both. time. It's both of those things, Claire. You're dead right. Yeah, I, honestly, when I hit 50. It's funny how I keep saying hit 50, like I've been involved in a car crash. You turn 20, <laughs> don't you? It's like turning the page. I'm turning <laughs> turning the chapter to my 20s and 30s, then suddenly go, hey, 50? Slam. Yes, it's a collision. Um, and I, I woke up on my 50, and it was like someone had woken me up, and I was like, wait, what? I die? You know, you, you you're at some point, that's how it ends for all of us. Then suddenly when you're 50, it's like you're in a long-running TV uh, show. You know you're not in the first couple of seasons. You know, you've got to start wrapping stuff up. And so it's, it is a, it's an amazing, violent wake-up call into your own life. But it's also really exciting. Tell us about the panic attacks then mm. and how they manifested. Because there were times where you literally were about to go on air. It was always First then. thing in the morning. Yeah, I was like, couldn't they come some other time when it's just a bit more convenient? But you know what? They don't work that way. It was literally, I'd arrived to work. And work for me was a, was a national breakfast show in the UK. So I'd built that up and had two and a half million listeners. I loved it. And I spent 20 years building that up. 
And suddenly it was literally, I, I would arrive at work to think that I just had nothing but joy. I'd never really had anxiety or panic around it, not that. I think if I'm really honest, and I think a lot of people would say this, who probably have had uh, experience of anxiety and panic attacks, which are really common and are very, very treatable, I just want to say as well, is that actually those warning signs have been going on for a couple of years, but what I'd got really good at is outworking them, sometimes having that extra glass of wine just to numb down this gnawing feeling of unease, and so it just reached the point where it became volcanic. But yeah, it was always before the radio show, about half an hour, I'd walk in the building, start to actually think, oh my God, I think I'm going to die. The last thing I want to do right now is, is be funny. Um, and I would just make up an excuse that I wasn't feeling very well and, and go. And it was the sense of humiliation. You feel that you're somehow your body is turning against you is terrifying. And I guess that's why they call them panic attacks. You know, and so, yeah, they were, they were really full on. I suddenly couldn't do a thing that I'd spent most of my life doing that I deeply loved. And there was something really cruel and uh, cruel about that. But I guess actually maybe it needed to threaten that to get me to wake up. Like, dude, we've been trying to tell you a couple of years. I'll tell you one thing which will get your attention. If you can't do that radio thing that you love to do, then you'll have to listen and pay attention, which is what I had to do. And I think, having spoken to a lot of people when the book came out, I didn't even want to talk about the panic attacks. But one of my daughters was having a really tough time at school. And I went into her bedroom. You've done this as a parent. You know, you go into their bedroom and they go, what do you want? The teenager that way. I hope you knocked. It's, oh yeah, you have to knock. You have to knock. <laughs> it's not going to see their teacher. And they go, come in. And you go, and I was really n nervous. And I was like, I started to give her some lecture, that mini TED talk that parents do. And halfway through it, she goes, what do you know about, you know, struggling and stuff like that? And I went, and I didn't know what to say. I walked down, I told my wife and my wife went, this is a moment for you to tell her the truth about your, what you went through. That, that's what she needs to hear. She doesn't want you trying to tell her not to feel it or giving her any, t uh, trying to fix it, which is what I was trying to do. Do this, do this breathing technique I'd learned. She doesn't need that. She needs to know the truth from you that you do know what it's like. And I went, yeah, but I, I don't want them thinking I'm weak. And I went, I don't, do you think they're going to think you're weak or do you think they're going to think you're human? And so I had to go back in there. From that moment onwards, I, I, I had to, I had to actually own my story and the power I got from it afterwards when I got out of there, it changed me. It changed our relationship because then both my daughters, because I had to talk to my other one as well and share it with her, both of them saw me completely differently. At first, I didn't want them to see me like that. You, As a parent, especially as a dad, you want to, you want them to see you as some kind of golden god. You actually don't want to be a human. It's like the Wizard of Oz. You don't shut the curtain. Don't look around here. I'm just making I'm it just all up. I'm just a wizard. Yeah. yeah, pressing buttons and faking it. Yeah, and a lot of time there's a child your age running my emotional system. Don't look around here. Um, and But then I started to think when I was going to write the story about why I le uh, left uh, English radio and why I moved to Australia, most people thought it was part of a midlife crisis. It wasn't. I had to be honest and say, it started with these panic attacks. You know, if I hadn't had that... I wouldn't have I, I wouldn't have done all this other stuff, and so I, I didn't want to put it in the book because I was worried people would judge me, and again that they would think I was weak. And then uh, I was telling my kids this, and they said, "But then you're going to so you're just going to lie." And I didn't even thought I was like, nah, "Yeah," and they won't. That's really sad. And so it's actually them nudging me. They said, "You always tell us to be vulnerable. Now you don't want to do it." Oh, yeah, the thing about vulnerability is it's really uncomfortable. <laughs> and putting in a book. Can't they just sort of, can't it just be a funny book about being a fish out of water in Australia? I've got all these funny stories about getting pronunciations wrong. I went, that's not interesting though. And so I made myself put it in the first couple of chapters because if I don't put this in the beginning, I'll convince myself not to do it. The wonderful thing is the book came out two years ago. I feared all this judgment. I really did. I was dreading the book coming out. Um, 
and it's the number one thing people want to talk about in in there. It's it's I get emails every day from people going, oh, that happened to me. I, I, I feel a bit less alone. Or what did you do to help you? It felt so good. Someone even said, I hope you don't mind this the wrong way. It felt so good knowing someone like you got them as well. But it's a great conversation to have because I know they say life whispers to you and if you don't listen, it starts mm, talking and then in that. the end it'll shout. Yes. And that's <laughs> clearly what happened. But mm. of course you're going to push down whispers of, are you really happy? Because you had... Two and a half million listeners. Yeah, you, yeah cry me a river. Do you know you're oh, wealthy, you have a beautiful being wife, so healthy happy kids, and successful. Poor him. And we talk about a midlife crisis mm. as being this: Are you just going to buy a Porsche now? What are you going to do? Leave your wife, get it, someone I tell younger. You what, buying a Porsche would have been a lot easier than <laughs> uprooting and moving to a country where. When I went on the radio there, let me tell you now, there were not two and a half million people waiting to hear some English guy on the radio. They hated me for the first year and a half, viciously. I mean, And did you know that was going to happen? No. Or did you I never, naively I never think yeah, it's th- going to be fine? Everyone, I just naively thought, everyone loves a charming Englishman. You know, I just thought they love English comedy in Australia. They do. But there's one thing about, you know, watching a TV show and then turning it off. People are, you know, you work in radio. People are very choosy and selective about who they want to hang out with on the radio. And I think they're the most selective in the morning. Breakfast radio is really important to people, right? They are, it's a battleground for ratings. It's an incredibly intimate time of the day as well. I've only ever done breakfast radio for 25 years. People just go, why don't you do an afternoon show? And it wouldn't be the same to me. That is radio for me. I like the intimacy. It's almost like when you're talking to people in the morning, they haven't quite got their armor on to deal with the rest of the world. They start putting that together as they go to work and get the coffee. And then when they're at work, they're armoured up. I've got them before that. So you can have these really interesting conversations. And I love doing radio in that space. I really think that's that's where that's where the joy and um, magic is for me. But when you went, it was like snakes and ladders. It was like going mm. all the way down the snake to the start. But you yeah. came in, you know, enthusiastic, ready. You'd brought the wife and kids on board and it was tough for them as well. Horrendous. I found it really hard with all your lasts you spoke about, saying goodbye to your mum, the kids last day at school, the goodbye videos from the classmates, like a huge emotional wrangling. Over you get, the sun is shining, it's like home and away. Yes, we watched that TV show, Escape to the Sun, and actually it was Escape to a heart, because it almost felt like we were in witness protection. We didn't know anyone and I, I remember very quickly, I thought, hang on a minute, I haven't got any friends. You know that stuff you don't even think about, right? I was like, I don't have any friends. And my wife, women generally, I find, Claire, make friends a lot easier. You're always recruiting. The sisterhood supports each other. Men are lone wolves, right? And so especially when you're middle-aged and you're from another country. So I, I, I didn't have any friends. My wife was making friends. She was going out Friday nights with some new friends she'd met, walking the dog. And I was there alone. At one sad point, I remember getting on really well with this Uber driver. And I said, this is so awful. I said at the end of it, hey, this has been really good fun. We should go out for beers. I remember he looked at me like, what? And I went, why don't we swap numbers? And right, he didn't do anything. So I then, this is awful. I'm so desperate. And asking an Uber driver out on a mandate. I gave him my number. To this day, that was three years ago. He's never he's never even texted me. That, that actually was a low point. I thought... You know, the radio show's not going very well. I've got no listeners. I've got no mates. Why why on earth? For someone trying to get over panic attacks, this is a really strange kind of answer to it. And my, my, my daughter's really struggled at school. We had to change schools three times. They had horrendous times at first. But now they love it there. They really, it's home now. 
And tell us about stress management now, because obviously life continues. Oh, you yeah. know, you've busy working life, family yes. life, you've kids leaving home. You know, it's not like you no. waved a magic wand and everything was okay. Yes, if only Claire. You've recently trained as a breathwork expert. Yes. When did that arrive? I wouldn't say expert. I, I was I just showing that tight teacher. Okay. Yeah, let's agree on that. I'm not an expert in anything. Are we not experts at breathing? <laughs> yes. Professionals. Yes, we are. We do it all day, every yes, day. Yes, without even having to think about it. Even when we're asleep, we are being breathed. Breathwork was one of the things that helped massively with panic and anxiety. It did. And still use it to this day. Um so that, yeah, that really made a difference. It wasn't the only thing. I needed to go and, you know, you, I think a good therapist or someone to come and talk you through it um, is really important as well. But breath work is free. It's very, very easy to learn because you said you do know how to do it. But there are these techniques that have been around for thousands of years that real make an immediate difference. That's been a big uh, uh, life changer for me in terms of being able to get more energy in the morning when I wake up to do what I still love to do. Uh, but also when things are getting starting to get a bit too much and overwhelming, just be able to bring a change and a uh, to be able to regulate myself very quickly. That's made a huge difference. And why did you want to get a qualification in it rather than just attend as a student? I think one, to learn more. Learn how to teach is the best way to do it. And then I actually, because people kept saying to me after I read the book, what, what kind of breath work? You know, and so I started to sort of train friends and I suddenly realized, oh, I don't, this is actually really nice to teach someone something. I didn't realize how, how nice it was. I didn't think it was going to be. So now it's become something which um, I wanted to share, actually. And I actually didn't, I didn't realize that I enjoyed being a teacher and sharing in it. And so I think that's why. Yeah. So, yeah, in about two months time, I will um, be taking people on to teach them breath work. Yeah. And do you tune in now and say, Am I happy? And what is the answer? I don't ask myself if I'm happy because that's such a murky question. It's like when people talk about purpose. That's a really big, exhausting question, purpose. I think it's about actually connecting to what brings you alive and being aware of that. You know, even the things like and a lot of people, you know, I speak to, they don't know how to find purpose. I feel stuck. And then sometimes I'm like, well, where... What are the areas where when you see someone doing something that you want to do, you feel jealous? And people have got a lot to say about that. And I thought, well, that's the thing you should be doing. That's your stumbling block right now is that. You have so much energy there. Use that. That anger, that felt, well, I, I, this guy the other day, he, he, he's doing this. And well, what's stopping you? You don't, need, you don't need anyone's permission. Get on with it yourself. No one invited him to do that. He just started to move towards it. Um, so, yeah, am I happy? No, I think it's that, that's such a hard question to answer. And I actually think it makes you so unhappy thinking about it. Because actually, I think a lot of our lives, being our lives is, is, uh, is two things. Uh, being amazed, being in awe, and being terrified. That's what it is to be human. You know, even flying away yesterday to come to Ireland for this big celebration for my, for my 50th, leaving behind my family and kids. I don't know whether it's in the world post-COVID. It felt like I was leaving them a long, long way away. And I found myself getting quite sad and a bit like, oh, have I chosen to do this? But then I realised, because this is an adventure. And I think as parents, we're constantly teaching our kids a lesson. And I think you could boil it down to two ways. Are they looking at your life thinking that life is an adventure that we get to go on with all the ups and downs? Or do they see it as something that you have to try and endure? And I thought, it's really important that I go to Ireland for me. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going down to Southern Ireland tomorrow, down to Galway, um, where I'm going on a guided walking tour with 30 other strangers from around the world, led by this amazing Irish poet called David White. I cannot wait. 
something completely different. Well, I so appreciate you putting this into your whimsical 50th trip to Ireland. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to to say I'm in Dublin. And also, thank you for what you do. These conversations are what you do. They're much needed in the world, you know, and you're so good at it as well. You've got such a big heart. Whenever I listen to you, I just feel better anyway. There's a magic in what you do. So thank you for what you do. You know, thank you very much for saying that. And I loved the book. Oh, I laughed out you. loud several times. There are so many moments of learning for all of us. It's called No One Listens to Your Dad's Radio Show. Christian O'Connell, thank you so, so much. Pleasure. And you can hear a longer form of that interview on my podcast, Changemakers, which is launching on the Go Loud app over the next few weeks. So that's it for I've Been Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aoife Breen, and to you for listening, and Hugo De Silva-Scott, who is on sound. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.